Amen. <laughs> you know, if there wasn't power in the blood, we'd all be wasting our time. Thank the Lord there's power in the blood of Christ. Amen. Anyway, this morning I want to talk to you a little bit differently because I'm going to go through a Bible study on the first book of Peter. Um, we're not going to get it all done today. <laughs> um, but we haven't done that t traditionally in services here. But to actually do a weekly study through a book of the Bible, we do that on Wednesday nights quite often. And that's fun. And I thought, just felt impressed that we need to do it on a Sunday morning. And uh, I would encourage you to read Peter throughout the week and uh, see what the Lord brings to your mind. Why Peter? Well, it's the book that the Lord laid on my heart. I guess that's just what I'm going to trust the Lord in, that that's the book that he said, study this book. And, you know, I like everything about Paul, and Paul wrote much of the New Testament, so we can look at, well, why didn't you pick about a, a book that Paul wrote? Um, but Peter's kind of interesting to me because Peter was a firsthand witness to Jesus. Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus in a divine appointment. But Peter had the opportunity to walk with Jesus in the flesh and blood. He had the opportunity to see him and experience the life of Christ um, like you and I would experience the life of a brother. Um, Peter was probably one of Jesus' closest friends while Jesus was alive. Peter was originally named Simon. Jesus changed his name from Simon to Peter, meaning rock or little rock. And he said, on this church, I will build the church. I will, on this rock, I will build the church. And, and, and so Peter had a, a special relationship with Jesus. And I want to talk a little bit more about that. He was a fisherman. He had a brother named Andrew. The brothers came from a, a village called Bethsaida. Peter was married. Did you know that? Peter was married. We don't know much about his wife or his family, but Peter had the issues of marriage like we do. He had the joys. I mean, oh wait, he had the joys of marriage. <laughs> he had the joys of marriage like we do. <laughs> That's my, oh, my wife is still here. Shoot. Yeah. He was also a follower of John the Baptist. Peter, like all humans, before their calling, was a sinful man. In fact, he was ashamed of his sinfulness in the presence of Jesus Christ. We look, we see this in Luke chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Jesus is standing on the shore. Peter's out in his boat fishing. Jesus says, hey, Peter, come here. Simon, come here. I need to get in your boat. I need to teach from your boat. I need to use your boat as a platform. This was prior to the calling of Simon. And we pick this up. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night long and we haven't caught anything. Jesus says to him, but I'm gonna, he's going to send him out to fish some more after Jesus speaks. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled their boat so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' feet and he said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. I'm a sinful man. I, here's the interesting part, that when, when the power of God is displayed, it makes men aware of their relationship with him. When the power of God is shown, it makes us aware of our relationship, good or bad. It's interesting to note that Peter was a follower of John the Baptist. So he knew what repentance was about. He knew what water baptism was about. 
He knew that Jesus was coming. He knew that. But yet, we can recognize that in Peter's life, he still did, never, did not have the personal relationship with Jesus until Jesus called him. He knew all about Jesus. You know, and that's the way many of us are today. Many of us know about Jesus. But until we have that personal relationship with him, do we really see the revelation of who he really is? When Peter fell at the feet of Jesus and declared his sinful nature, everyone knew that something was happening in the life of Peter. Can you imagine what his brother Andrew was thinking and the other fishermen around him when all of a sudden Peter, a strong fisherman, fell at the feet of Jesus and said, Oh, I am a sinful man. Something was happening in the life of Peter that was obvious. And I wonder if that's why sometimes the Holy Spirit shows up and the power is demonstrated to an unbeliever so that that unbeliever can have that revelation of who Jesus is and recognize that maybe his relationship with him isn't really what it should be, like Peter had that revelation. See, God doesn't look at the outside of a person like we do, but God's looking at the inside. He's focused on the heart. He's focused in on the potential that God's created you to be and he wants to do whatever he can to break through that outer shell and get into that heart realm with you to say, you know who I am? I'm Jesus. I am, the, I am the Savior of the world, and I am the Lord of those that serve me. And you cannot have the fullness of life until you know who I am. Until you have the relationship that I can give you, you will think you have things figured out. But until I break through that crusty exterior into that soft heart and make it pliable again, that's exactly what was happening to Peter. Jesus then called Peter later on in that verse. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Peter was perhaps the first disciple that Jesus called. And that started one of the best relationships that I think two men could ever have. Jesus being the perfect mentor, the perfect role model, and Peter being the one of the gruffest, possibly crude men of his day. Because fishermen were not highly skilled and highly honed. They were pretty rough in their character. And all through Scripture, we see this relationship between Jesus and Peter being honed and perfected. Peter in his humanity and Jesus in his divinity coming together to form a union of man and God, working together. And that's a role model that you and I can also seek to have. Peter was an eyewitness to the many miracles that Jesus did and also witnessed the, the glory of who Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And this is where Jesus' humanity was peeled back to reveal the glory of who he really was in his divine nature. Peter was probably the first to witness who Jesus was on earth and then who he was in the heavenlies. You see, up to this point in time, Peter and Jesus had this humanity relationship that was looking eye to eye. And they go up in the Mount of Transfiguration and all of a sudden, Jesus is revealed to who he really is. And now Peter has to look up, look up to his friend as being divine. Matthew chapter 17 says, After six days, starting at verse 1, After six days, Jesus took Peter 
took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. You've got to imagine that kind of blowing Peter away a little bit. Can you imagine standing next to somebody, and all of a sudden their face just starts to glow like the sun, and their clothes become white as light, and you just can't even look at them? What an amazing thing. Just then there appeared before him Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. <laughs> That's just typical Peter, man. He's just a go-for-it guy. Verse 5, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. <laughs> I just can't imagine what that experience would have been like. Wouldn't that have been awesome to be standing there and all of a sudden two other men appear in heavenly form and start talking with your friend, Jesus, and you get to witness that, and then you hear this voice from heaven and this big, booming voice saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. You would do good to listen to him. <laughs> okay, that would have my attention. I think I'd be listening Occasions like that provided Peter with the facts and the experiences that would shape his life to be different and to give him an authority to be able to speak about Jesus in a way that no one else could. I'm enthralled with Peter. Peter's one of these guys that um, could be so brash and so outright wrong in some ways, but yet he had a heart for Jesus that just went beyond any man's heart. You know, and it's interesting, I was, last night actually, I had a, one of those, you know how the Lord gives revelations, and a little revelation they gave to me from my mom, and said, you know that in just a few days, we don't know how long, my mom is going to be in heaven, and she's going to get to meet Peter. Think about it. Come on, there are people that, that, that's almost like a moment of transfiguration revelation for me to think I have someone right here that I love, that's my mother, that is soon is going to be walking in the footsteps and in the shadows of Peter and Moses and Elijah and King David and all those around us. Isn't that awesome? And that's a promise. That's not just a wishful thinking. That is a promise from the Word of God. Yeah, that's awesome. Peter's relationship with Jesus changed over the course of time from a disciple to an apostle. From a disciple to an apostle. Now, what does that mean? A disciple means a follower of. To, to be a disciple means you're going to follow. And that is what most Christians actually are today. We're disciples of Christ. We're followers of Christ. We're disciples. An apostle is one sent forth in a sense of being sent forth by God to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So an apostle is one that is set apart and sent forth to, to proclaim the gospel to areas that may not have heard the gospel before. Peter was trained and he was mentored by Jesus as a disciple to be one set apart and one sent forth specifically for the task of establishing the church specifically for the task of establishing what Jesus wanted to establish so that you and I could be part of the church. But what's interesting about this, though, is that 
before Peter could become an apostle, he first had to be a disciple. It's very important that we understand this. That, very simply put, one can't be a good leader until they learn to be a good follower. One can't be set in a place of leadership until that person has been trained and been trained as a good follower before they can be a good leader. Being a good follower provides the foundation for being a good leader. A good follower develops the required trust in the people that they're one day going to be leading because they've earned their trust as a fellow follower. And then so that when they do have the role of leadership, people say, I will follow that man because he was a good follower. So therefore, I will follow his example as a leader because he earned my trust when he, was, when he and I were following together. The person that learns to follow is a humble person. He's a patient person. He's an understanding person. And he's willing to wait until the call of the Lord becomes relevant to his life. He doesn't jump in prematurely and say that I'm impatient and I'm just going to jump in to lead because it's my natural gift to lead because there are some people that are naturally good leaders. But a good leader, though, must learn how to be a good follower if he's going to be able to have a good leadership quality for those to follow. Amen? A perfect example of this is King David. King David. He a man after God's own heart. See, one of the things about King David and another good follower is that a person that is learning to follow is more about fulfilling the will of the Father than fulfilling their own agenda and building up their own ego. Yeah. They're more about fulfilling the will of the Father than their own agenda. And King David was a perfect example. He was called, if you turn in your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 16, the prophet Samuel anointed David as the next king of Israel while David was a shepherd in his father's fields. Verse 16, or chapter 16, beginning at verse 11, Sam, or the, Samuel came to Jesse, David's father, and said, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day, on this, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David came powerfully upon David. It's estimated that David might have been 15 years old when this happened. Okay, a, a boy. Samuel anointed him as a future king. It wasn't for another 15 years until David was about 30 was he finally anointed as the king. So what was David doing for 15 years? He was anointed as king. He was a, appointed to be the next king of Israel. But he had 15 years of learning to be a good follower before he could be a good leader. That's interesting that we would see it that way. This learning to submit to those in authority are, is, is a foundation of respect that grows with those that are learning to be a good follower as, so that they can be a good leader. It's a pay-forward type of a concept. It's a reaping and sowing type of a concept. Not only was David learning obedience and respect, but he lived it out by his actions. 1 Samuel chapter 24. 
Verse 10, This day you have seen with your very own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. This is when Saul, the king, was chasing David and Saul had to go into a cave to relieve himself, is what the Bible says. You never think about that, do you? But he did. And it just so happened that David was in the back of the cave that Saul went into. And here is Saul, pretty vulnerable. David sneaks up on him, and he cuts a, part, a piece of his robe off and sneaks away, and Saul doesn't even know it. Saul does his job. He goes back out. David comes out of the the cave with a piece of Saul's remnant of his clothing that says, Saul, I could have killed you, but I'm, I can't touch the anointed. Here, David is running from Saul for his life, but yet David had such a respect of who God anointed as a leader that he wasn't going to take it into his own hands to kill him because he very well could have killed him to save his life. He could have justified, I'm going to kill him right now because he's out to kill me anyways, and then I'm, I'm already anointed king, so I'm just going to take it prematurely. See, this is a great example of patience. This is something we need to learn. We so often want to just jump in and be the leader. And God says, no, I'll appoint you in this time. I have a great plan for you. You're going to lead great things, but first, will you follow? Prove to yourself. Prove to your people. That's important. The discipling process was necessary in Peter, the same thing, so that he could be the apostle that God called him to be. It took a, part, a period of time in Peter's life. Peter went on to be the church, the great leader of the church. He preached the first Holy Spirit-filled message in the day of Pentecost that resulted in over 3,000 saved and added to the church. He was one of the boldest apostles of all. He willingly suffered persecution and imprisonment, beatings, and even rejoiced at the fact that he was worthy to suffer disgrace for the Lord's sake. Do we rejoice in our worthiness to suffer for Jesus? Or do we pray our way out of the suffering? Hmm. It's a good question. Acts chapter 5, verse 38 through 42 the apostles are imprisoned, and this is Peter's response. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, they'll fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. The speech of the Pharisee persuaded the rest of them, and they called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Could you imagine that? They were just beaten and flogged and they left rejoicing. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Man, if only I could get that in my heart a little bit more. Instead, I like to grumble and complain about how I'm not being treated right. Anybody else say amen? amen? Yeah. But Peter's one of those very special people in the whole world that was gifted to see, to see the things and experience the relationship with Jesus Christ in the flesh. So with all this established about the life of Peter, it gives us a little bit more focus on what he writes in the New Testament. Now, let's turn to, let's turn to the book. 1 Peter, what is the 1 Peter about? It's a relatively short letter, it's, but it's packed full of pertinent information. 
It was written around A.D. 60 or 63. Peter died in A.D. 67 or 68. So Peter was writing after a good number of ministry years and with great experience. This was almost at the end of Peter's life. Peter had spent 30 years or so building the church, being an apostle after being a disciple. This was the first of two letters that he wrote. We'll find that this, this, this letter was addressed to strangers that he said in, in chapter 1, verse 1, scattered throughout the Roman provinces of Asia Minor. Probably, probably Peter was writing to those converts that he preached to the day of Pentecost. Because the day of Pentecost, remember, that was people from all over were there. People of many languages, many tribes were there. They got saved. They go back home. 30-some years later, Peter's writing a letter to them. These are probably the same people that he probably witnessed to originally. What's the purpose of the letter? Peter wrote this letter in joyful hope to provide Christians with the eternal perspective of their earthly lives. We need to have an eternal perspective of what's going on in our earthly lives. We need to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. As with all New Testament writers, God gave the writers the, the ability to see beyond their situations. They could see beyond what was currently happening in their life so that they could write with the Holy Spirit's utterance to give people a good word of what's happening in the future, what's to come. You've got to remember that they were hoping, they were believing that Jesus was going to come back any day, like the way he left. These men, the disciples and Peter and one of them, they saw Jesus transcend to heaven. They saw him leave. They saw him uh, be ascended after the Great Commission. They saw that. So for that reason, they had, they had little, little problem recognizing that there was more to life than what they see today. When you see Jesus and walk with him all your life or the last three years of your life and then see him trans or ascend into heaven and the, and the angels come down and say, what are you looking for now? He's going he's gonna to come just the way he's leaving. He's coming back. These men had no problem believing that. Maybe we do a little bit. Maybe we have a hard time appreciating the fact that Jesus is coming back. Not these men. They, they got it. They got it. Peter's purpose was to give practical guidance to those who were beginning to experience intense persecution and opposition and suffering as Christians in an ungodly, in an ungodly culture. You know, if Peter's environment was ungodly and if the message that he was writing to those people were to impact and encourage those in an ungodly environment, how much more can it encourage us in the environment that we live in? I, I think our environment is probably a little bit more ungodly, don't you think? And it's not to say that there haven't been bad times in history. But I think we are at a precipice. I don't think it could get any much darker. I mean, when we're doing, when things are happening around us and in, in, in the homosexuality and the, the abuse that's happening with children and, and, and the abortion and all the things that, that are happening in our society and it's just almost accepted as commonplace, that's pretty dark. We've been, a, we've been aborting children for 30 or 40 years legally. How many millions of babies have we aborted? Think about that. 50 or more million? Yeah. Or more? Yeah. 
Peter begins by reminding Christ's followers of several things. First of all, that they are God's elect. They're considered strangers and aliens in the world that they live in. That they have a glorious purpose and a heavenly inheritance waiting for them. That they will be tested and their faith will be strengthened as a result as they are refined through difficulty and suffering. But it will, it will result in praise and glory to Jesus. That everything that they are experiencing or we are experiencing has been predicted and prophesied by the Old Testament prophets. So important that we recognize that our experiences aren't formulating our theology. Our theology is based on biblical prophetic statements that were made thousands, over thousands of years by many, many different writers, and now we're pacing that as God's word, and now we're allowing our experiences to measure up to them, and if our experiences don't measure up, we're not changing theology to match our experience. Rather, we're letting the experience of God's word, the factual experience of God's word, dictate and control our theology, regardless of how I feel about it. Because I can feel a bunch of weird things. But I have to go back to Scripture. And Peter talks about that as well. Peter declares that as a result of what Jesus has done for them, they, we, are to live holy lives. Did you hear that? We are to live holy lives, clearly different than the culture and the society around us. This is not just a mere suggestion from Peter. He's just not saying, I would advise you to. No, we're going to find out as we get through this study that he clearly points to that it, this, this is a must. This is a requirement. We do not have an option to live a compromised life and still think we're pleasing to the Lord. I want you to know that. That's what God's Word says. We have to be set apart and live holy and righteous and uncompromised with the world because if we start buying into the worldly culture, if we start buying into the society around us, that's not biblical. You can't find it anywhere in Scripture that it says God wants halfway. He wants it totally His way. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith, and we must follow what He says. He reminds them and us that we are growing in our relationship and that we're maturing as babes in Christ, that we're to move from spiritual milk into the meat of God's Word, that we are to grow up, that we are living stones and that we are being built into a spiritual house that will be able to stand against the wiles of the enemy and all the false teachers that are out there and that we're going to be victorious in the process. And for all these reasons, we must live honorably and humbly in relationship with Christ because we are just journeying through this life. We are pilgrims. This is not our home. This is not where it's going to end. This is just where it's starting. With death, death has no hold on us, folks. We are just transitioning as Christian, as followers of Christ, as disciples, and even some as apostles in this world. We are just following Jesus, and we're just going to be following his footsteps right into eternity. Death comes, it separates us from our bodies. This body falls away, but our spirit rises. Our spirit lives on and never, ever dies. Amen. Yeah. The primary purpose and message throughout this letter is Peter's concerns towards godly submission and suffering honorably for Christ, regardless of the situation that you find yourself in. Peter assures believers that by suffering for what is doing right, and not compromising in order to gain material things or to win favor of men, you will be favored and you will be rewarded eternally. 
if you will maintain your position in Christ. It's a good word. It's a good word. So I pray that as we study this letter for the next number of weeks that we will find great encouragement to live holy and righteous lives before the Lord and that we will honor him and will bring glory to his name. Open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 1 and let's just take a couple minutes now to get into the first couple verses here. This is, this is the Christian greeting that, Paul, that Peter brings. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles, or another translation says, to strangers in this world, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. What a place to start. What an, what an introduction. Peter is addressing to those um, that are victorious in Christ already. First off, Peter has identified himself as the author. No question about it. He's the author as the Holy Spirit gave him words to speak. Peter's an apostle. Remember, he's one that's set forth. He's going and uh, being appointed by Jesus to spread the gospel, to build a church. He's just doing what he was called to do. Nothing more, nothing less. Peter's just obediently following. He describes who the audience of the letter is to God's elect or the strangers in the world scattered throughout the provinces of Asia. What does it mean when he calls God, calls the elect of God as strangers in the world? What does it mean to be a stranger in the world? Yeah, it's not a derogatory comment, by the way. It, it, it's, it's really, it's a classification that understand that people are living in this world but not living of this world. They are just passing through this world. Really, it's a great honor to be called a stranger, to be an alien. First Peter 2.11, we're going to find this later, but he says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and aliens to abstain from sinful desires. Again, we're pilgrims just passing through. Very important point to recognize that this is not our home because if this is our home, we'll get preoccupied with the things of this world. If this is our home, then we'll get really preoccupied and really, really set on getting everything I can get in this world at the disadvantage of what comes after, to your own demise. This letter is to us today that as we consider ourselves strangers and aliens, that we, to, we are to know that this will free us from the grasp of greed this will free us from the, from the grabbing all I can get mentality of this world because I am not a citizen here. My citizenship is in heaven. And that's where I declare. Then in verse 2 it says, Who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. We're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now what does that mean? Well, this is not predestination. That's not predestination. God wants all people to go to heaven. He does not predestine only a few and those not to go. This is not predestined. What this means, this is, this is a way that God says in my omniscience, I know all things. I know the future. And I would foreknow my foreknowledge would be that you all would follow me, that you all would choose to receive me. So the foreknowledge here is that Jesus is calling you out. He's calling you out for you to say yes. 
One Bible commentary says this, this means that just as God knows all things, he has always known how he would work out his plan to save people spiritually and restore them to a right relationship with him through the work of his son Jesus. The plan was in effect even before the creation and human history began. Before man ever sinned, God had the plan already in his mind. This was not an afterthought. The word foreknowledge means that God knew that we would choose and set ourselves apart. And therefore, he gives us the ability to do so by the power of the Holy Spirit to live that way. Through the sanctifying work of the Spirit means that we would live obedient lives to Jesus' commands. That we would set ourselves apart and we would love Jesus and we would honor him by obeying him. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what? You'll keep my commands. If you love me, you'll obey me. It's a proof. This passage gives reference to all three in the Godhead. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son, Jesus Christ. Peter addresses believers that have relationship with the entire person of God. God, through, God knew them. The power of the Holy Spirit is sanctifying them or setting them or us apart so that we could be obedient to the words of Christ. That little introduction says the whole gospel message right there. God loved you. He sent the Holy Spirit to convict you. He sent the Holy Spirit to bring you into a knowledge of who Jesus Christ is so that you can accept Jesus Christ and you can be obedient to him. That little passage says it all right there. What, a, what an introduction to a Bible study. Jackie, we're going to wrap this up. If you would come to the, and just play some music maybe. But Peter concludes this introduction by praying a... a a prayer of peace and abundance. This is the cool thing. This is so cool. It's so exciting to think that God's grace and his peace is ours without limit. God is not limited by how much grace he has. Therefore, if I see grace being extended to a person that I don't think grace should be extended to, I don't have to get jealous because you're getting my grace. No, God's got unlimited amount of grace. It's unlimited. So let him give grace to them all. Why would I be concerned that he's given grace to somebody that I don't think she should have grace? It doesn't take away from me. He's unlimited in his mercy. He's unlimited in his grace. It's without, it's without limit. Grace and peace, two of the greatest words in a human language, are ours without limitation. We're to be set apart to live whole lives of holiness and set apart for sanctifying works. But can I tell you, that is the best choice we could ever make. You will never be dissatisfied if you set Christ as the leader of your life. If you follow him and you become a, a sincere, committed disciple of Christ, you will have unlimited grace, unlimited mercy, unlimited blessing, forever forever so what are we seeking this morning is this the passion of our lives am I positioning my life to receive that are you positioning your life to receive that that's the question what do you want this morning what do you want are you really wanting that or are you satisfied with a compromised lifestyle to get what you can get here only to lose it in the end Amen. let's pray Father, we just come to you in Jesus' name. And we really do honor you with our lives today. 
And help us, Lord. Help us, Jesus, because we're not perfect. We've all made mistakes. We all need to be forgiven. We all need to have a daily uh, recleansing of our lives with you. Yes, you've, you've, we've, we're saved, we're set apart, but Lord, that doesn't, but that means I just need more of you today. I need more of you today than I had yesterday, and I'm going to need more of you tomorrow than I have today. It is a growing, sanctifying work in my life that continues forever and ever and ever, and I want that to be pleasing to you. Forgive me for the times that I've messed up. Receive me, I pray. This morning, as you are thinking about that, while your eyes are closed this morning, if you haven't accepted Jesus, if you've never gone to that point of actually receiving him into your life, I want to give you an opportunity right now to do that. It's very simple. You don't have to clean yourself up first. You come to him just as you are and say, Jesus, I am a broken, sinful man, just like Peter said he was. I am broken and sinful. I know about you, but I really don't know you, and I want to have a relationship with you. If, you're, if, if you have that in your heart this morning, would you just show that by a lifted hand and just say, Jesus, I need you. I need you. I need you. Maybe there's here this morning that want more that want more and are willing to commit themselves to live better, more intense, more intentional, more purposeful. Maybe we have been compromising some areas in our life. Maybe it's time that we stop. Yeah. Amen. I see those hands. Amen. Yes. I'm with you. I'm, I'm with you. We're all together in this one. Amen. Amen. I want you to know that God's mercy is unending. God's grace is never limited. There's nothing you've done or will do that could ever outwork God's mercy. Accept it. Don't fight it. Accept it. Invite it in your life. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we just come to you. In Jesus' name, and for those that have raised their hands, Lord, I just pray your unlimited mercy and your unlimited grace would just fall on them. Let them feel the presence of Jesus right now. Just give them freedom. Freedom, like Janine expressed about how free it is. Lord, let us be children. Let us dance in your presence and appreciate and celebrate your goodness. Thank you, Father, for who you are, for your revelation knowledge to us. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's sing the song that Jackie's playing. And let's just celebrate. You can stand up if you want to. Amen. Thank you, Jesus.
Father, we love you. We thank you for this promise. We thank you for your presence. Now, Lord, let it go with us throughout this day. Let it go with us throughout this week. Let us never walk out from underneath it. We just honor you today, and we invite you with us all day long. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go bless in the Lord this morning. He's a good God. He loves you. Amen.